This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode four of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisor, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is part of the family of Horse Radio Network. Today we have Ada Gates, Master Farrier, and we have Dr. Robert Miller, DVM, father of Full Imprinting. They're here to give us their views on horsemanship today. Thank you for supporting our sponsors to make this show possible. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to Horsemanship Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 15th and the 30th of the month. I have my producer, Glenn the Geek, here with me today to tell us more about the details about the network. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Debbie. It's good to talk to you again. And we're getting into the holiday season now, believe it or not. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it, you know what? It, it is true that what they say about uh, time going faster the older you get. Yeah, like a toilet roll, don't they say? The you know, the further you pull it down, the faster it starts to roll around there. Darn it! I never heard that analogy compared to age <laughs> before, but I guess that works. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't make it. Up. I want I want to know psychologically why you went there, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Must be the holidays. <laughs> Must be. That's funny. <laughs> okay, so you can tell us all the ways that listeners can find the shows, right? I'm pulling out of this one. <laughs> Yes, uh, you can listen to the show through our app is uh, the way that a lot of people are doing it now. The app just came out about two months ago. Go to the iOS or Android app store on your phone or your iPad or uh, your iPod, and you can download, look for Horse Radio Network. All the shows are on there, and your show is officially on there. Did you see it? Yes, yes. It, I, I did. iTunes and all. Android. We've got links up there. Yeah, yep. it's so exciting to see yeah. that logo. It's Since beautiful. we talked the last time, actually, it has popped into both uh, the right. uh, both Android and iOS uh, in the in the app. So you can mm-hmm. listen to all of the Horsemanship Radio show episodes on that app. And it's very simple, very easy. You can either stream it or you can download them and listen to them at any time. And uh, it, there's very few buttons. And we, we've actually gotten them. This is amazing with the thousands of people that we have that listen. We've actually gotten no complaints, which is like, oh. I was, I, you can push me over you're, because I was expecting yeah, it. Yeah, you're Glenn the Geek. I know. Yeah. You must have technological problems all the time. We That's do. And, and it's like, nobody's complaining about this. What, you know, what do we do wrong? You know? Like, yeah. Are they all dead? Are you yeah. out there? Are you listening? Yeah, no. And we know they're listening because we get the numbers. But, it, and we have gotten great feedback on the app. So do that. You can also listen at uh, horsemanshipradio.com or all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. We now have 11 shows on the network. So you have your pick of all different types of programming. Definitely. Definitely a whole scope. It's wonderful. And it's a lot of fun for us to listen to the different ones, too. We're all having fun. We're sharing the, sharing the love. Well, I got to ask before you go on, and I'm catching you off guard with this, but I like doing that to you. Um, mm-hmm. So now I have to ask you, were the holidays a big deal around the Roberts household growing up? Because we're coming up on one of my favorite holidays of the whole year, which is Thanksgiving. It's even, I even like that better than Christmas. Uh, because there's not the pressure. It's just family hanging out and you know, eating food and having a good time and watching some football. So how was it with you guys? Mm-hmm. Was it Huge. horses or was it, uh, was that a non-horse day? Uh, like uh, Thanksgiving? You know what? Yeah. You live on a farm, you know, better than yeah. that. There's always a horse day. 
there's always horses to feed and things to do. But yeah, it's huge. Uh, Thanksgiving was huge because I, I'm with you. There was no gifts involved. It was just a day to, you know, eat like a glutton and, and lay around. But uh, it was it's always nice in California and in the central California, the weather's always beautiful. And, uh, I don't remember a really rainy or awful Thanksgiving. So we would play tag football out on the lawn, but there's always a ton of people around. Cause not only did we have all the foster kids growing up and, and just, uh, people that are, uh, that live on the farm, it, we, families would come up and have, I mean, mom made the biggest turkey I, I ever saw. And then plus dad would smoke turkeys. So we would have turkey coming out of our ears, <laughs> tryptophan, you know, hangovers. And, uh, but as kids, yeah, it was, it was a blast and all the way into Christmas too, with all the people around, I, I guess it always felt like, uh, that was Christmas. I didn't realize that people might've just done it with their families actually. <laughs> so, um, it, it felt very ranchy that way, you know, that everybody gathered up and, uh, and we're involved. How is it then when you had your kids and did, does the does the whole family tend to still get together? Or? Yeah, the ranch is just a great place to go. So it was always a good excuse to make mom cook. You know? <laughs> we, just, we, we headed there and uh, if she was lucky, we brought some extra stuff. And yeah, you know, I lived for, in Washington state for a while. And so we would still load up the kids and head down there. It's just a beautiful place to be at this time of year. Now did... Uh, now has it changed? Do you do you guys cook and and she gets to sit back? No, she still oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't tell her. Um, we don't want to change anything. You know that usually. Yeah. Hey, mom, that usually happens in most families. I'm just saying. <laughs> but she's got the biggest house and the best. She's she cooks the best. So the only funny story we have from both Christmas and Thanksgiving between my mom and dad, and it is historical, is they fight over the gravy. They fight. They definitely fight over there. I know violence is never the answer. Who makes and all the that. gravy, or what kind of gravy? Uh, both. Both. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, some one is mushrooms and milk. one's not mushrooms. No, no, nothing okay. that bad. Oh, okay. It's no, it's milky versus turkey oil. You know, you know how some people like that milky, and then some people, I, everybody's I'm, either I'm nodding the their head or shaking their heads. Right I'm now. on the milky side and don't put mushrooms. See, oh, no, no, mushrooms. That You would be booed out of our house. No, that would be bad if you had mushrooms in there. <laughs> Somebody tried to do oysters one year, and they were booed out. Oh, you know what else, too? Uh, my wife's family does raisins in their stuffing. Uh, nah. and, and it's like, oh, you don't mess with it. Don't mess with perfection. You just don't add stuff. <laughs> yeah, do that in February if you That's want right. to. You do not do that at Thanksgiving. Okay, now I, I need to know the other uh, a very important question on holiday mm-hmm. meals. Is it cranberry sauce out of the can, or is it the chunky kind? Oh, the chunky kind that oh. sometimes gels and sometimes doesn't, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, see, homemade. we were always canned. I can't do the chunky kind. Oh, sorry. You like the thin kind that jelly stuff oh yeah that's the best stuff we we actually are the only family in america that eats it all my wife and i will eat it uh we have it probably several times a week (laughs) you mean all year long yes yes (laughs) we're the only ones buying it it's it's the oldest cans on the shelf but uh yeah we do like it all year long i know it's weird but yeah we do like the canned kind and we can't eat the chunky kind i don't want my cranberries looking like cranberries i'm gonna sneak raisins into you (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk horses and get on with the show. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to hear today from Ada Gates, and you're going to love Ada Gates. She is one of the biggest characters you'll ever meet. I'm going to hear more about Ada Gates after this from Index Fund Advisors, matching people with portfolios. 
Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, He's a Sugar Bear. <laughs> you know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com. That's IFA as an Index Fund Advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. In 1978, Ada became the first woman farrier licensed to shoe thoroughbred horses in the United States and Canada. Her unique status gave her great opportunities, including guest appearances on Late Night with David Letterman and The Today Show. She's sought after as a leading expert for her dedication to the industry, including farrier liaison for the 1984 Olympic Games, the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Parade, and she's a member of the California Thoroughbred Foundation Board of Directors. She's received the Edward Martin Humanitarian Award, and she served on the Farrier Committee for the All-Tech FEI World Games held in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome, Ada Gates. Welcome, Ada Gates. Hi, Debbie. What an honor to be on air with you. Thank you oh. for calling. It's our pleasure, Ada. You know that uh, Monty, Dad, and I always love getting together with you, and I wish he was here to do this. He's in Germany right now, so he's going to miss out, but he'll hear it from Germany. Well, the pleasure is all mine. It's always an honor to be in your presence. Well, I can't wait to introduce you to this audience. I don't know if a lot of people know you, but we've started this um, horsemanship radio because we're going a real cross-section of wonderful uh, and experienced horse people to tell people about their lives and their work with horse horses all their lives and their opinions and views on horsemanship and what it is today and where it's going. And you're definitely one of those people that I wanted to get on here real early in the launch because you have so much depth to your um, well, to your experiences. Thank you, thank you, Debbie. Thank you. So, how much is horsemanship needed for farrier work. We've introduced you now as one of the the, uh, most experienced farriers, certainly woman farriers ever to this date. Tell me about horsemanship and farrier. Well, I think it's critical, and I think there's sort of an unhappy uh, area where the horseshoer arrives to do the work on the horse. He's not expected to train that horse. The horse is not well-behaved. And so even though the horseshoer knows how to handle a horse, that's not his job. He, his head is down there close to the feet, which are, as you know, the protective devices of the horse. And horses will kick and leap and jump and and jerk their feet a lot. And, it, and it, it's upsetting to the farrier. And it's it's hard for a farrier to stay calm and, and keep patience when he, he perceives 
that the horse is not well-behaved because he has not been well-trained or he's mm-hmm. not being well-handled at the head. And so I think that um, people perceive the farrier as ill-tempered. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's trying to get his job done. He's trying to do an excellent job on the horse, and he's not able to because there seems to be a breakdown of cooperation, can be, between the handler with the horse in the middle and the farrier trying to do his job. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes things go south. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you keep your patience with a horse? Well, I the first I never take a horse out of the stall or touch a horse unless he's got the Monty Roberts Dooley halter on that horse. And if the owner is unfamiliar with that apparatus, or if the horse especially is unfamiliar with it, I take the time to introduce it to the owner or the handler, and I'm just, and I, if I know the horse, or if I start on the horse and he's quiet, we're fine. But I still have the Dooley Holter on the horse, and if the horse is not well behaved, then we do Monty's Dooley Dance. Uh-huh. I allow the horse to become familiar with the Dooley Holter, I make sure that it's properly fitted, absolutely, before I take him out of the stall that it's snug and it's, and it's well applied. And then I, you know, back the horse, bring him forward, turn him to the left, turn him to the right. I show the owner how to do that. I uh, encourage the owner to do it themselves. And then I rely on the Dooley halter to help me get through the horse. If, let's say, he's got a problem foot, like he always kicks on the left hind or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we just do the training session, and, it, you know, the horses are very smart. They get one or two uh, reprimands with the Dooley halter, you know, negative consequences, and they usually just calm right down. Mm-hmm. So, well, again... I, I think what I, I'm hearing you saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing it right, is yeah. that you're training on that horse a bit. Um, and and I, I always hear Dad say that he doesn't think it's fair that the farrier shows up to train on the horse, that the, that the owner should have that horse prepared a bit. Um, what do you think on that? I couldn't agree more. But um, I think you almost have to do it as a self-preservation device. Um, mm. Yes, the, trainer, the horseshoer should be paid to train that horse. But if you can get it done in, you know, 10 minutes or so, and they've got a cooperative owner, I think, you, you know, you have to halfway have to write it off. If the horse is still intractable mm-hmm. and the owner is not able to handle the horse, you know, I, I do the walk. I say, I'm terribly sorry. I think this horse needs um, a little more help mm-hmm. before he can be properly shod. Good for you. And Good for you. I, I remove myself because I cannot afford to be hurt. And I don't want that horse to get into any kind of situation where he thinks he can get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I think good farriers are really hard to find. So I imagine that owners want to hear how we get to that spot and, and uh, get a horse that's happy to see the farrier. Uh, are there tells when you go into, uh, sh- back when you trimmed, when you went into a, a new horse, could you tell right away that that horse had been handled properly or not? And what are those things that owners can do uh, I mean, that's nice of you to mention the dually halter and, and get some training ahead. But what else can they do to to uh, 
prepare for the farrier? Well, two questions. Yes. Horses, if you're awake and you're quiet and you're listening, you can pretty much tell if a horse uh, is going to be cooperative with you or not. And certainly when you pick up the foot, the left front to start, if they don't want to do this, they'll, you know, slam it down on the ground or they'll pull back or they'll do something. Let's get into Ada Gates a little bit. I mean, you grew up with horses, is that right? I did. I was uh, born and raised on the East Coast in New York in uh, Locust Valley, Long Island. We had, I had a pony when I was four years old Mm -hmm. and I had horses all my life and I fox hunted and I show jumped. And my grandfather, my mother, and one of my five brothers were uh, um, very involved with horses, both in uh, polo, steeplechasing, fox hunting, um, western ranch, um, cattle, roping. And so there was a wide range of horse life growing up, and I was very embedded. I took care of all my horses and mucked their stalls and... I remember that the favorite part and the most important person to me was the blacksmith. When he came and he lit his forge and he shod the horse, that to me was just uh, thrilling. So uh, as I grew up and moved away, went to college, had a career in New York in the theater, and I was a dancer and an actress and um, did a lot of work uh, in New York for many, many years, then um, somehow found myself on a you know, kind of a lark of a trip, trip out west to Colorado, and I liked it so much. I was in my mid to late 20s. I said, gee, this, I love it out here in the beautiful Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And so, of course, the first thing I did was buy a horse, and I couldn't find a horseshoe. And when the fellow that I got finally showed up, he was so drunk he couldn't get out of the truck. And I said, you're oh. my horse. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, of course, and I was very used to very good horseshoers and, and you know, bona fide mm-hmm. farriers. But here I was out in the Wild West. I finally got a very good guy, and he came. And he said, I'm glad you got me today, Ada, because he said, I'm moving away from here to move back east and work in uh, racehorses in the east because I can't make a living out here in the west. Mm-hmm. Oh, I simply died. Now what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, as God would have it, I happened to just by accident see an article about a horseshoeing school in Oklahoma, and I said, well, yeah, come on. I can go to this school, and I'll learn how to shoe my own horse, and then I will be independent, and I won't have to rely on uh, this terrible strength that I'm in. So I go off to school in Oklahoma, and it's me and 49 guys. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And the first thing the teacher says to me is, I don't want no woman in my school. I said, hmm, that's a double negative. That must mean he wants me. <laughs> well, anyway, I somehow survived two months, uh, like the march to Bataan, and I graduated, and I came back to Colorado, and I went into a kind of a more ranch area, not in the ski area where I was before, and I started shoeing horses, and I started shoeing backyard horses, and... um horses that are just there in the country and then I started moved on to ranch horses and I did some western uh, quarter horses racing like on the you know kind of fair circuit and after seven or eight years I thought you know what I, I want to do this I want to go on and be the best and I need to go and train with really really top farriers and I've got to go I want to go back east where I came from mm-hmm. And so I went back east to get an apprenticeship 
and I was rejected out of hand by everybody. Now, this is 19... I got up school in 71, so this is like 76, 77. Mm -hmm. No women shoeing horses. And I went from uh, Massachusetts to Virginia for five or six weeks, checked in with all the people that I knew that owned horses, the heads of Fox Hunts, the heads of Belmont Racetrack, and they knew me, they knew my parents, introduced me to the farriers, and they all said, get out of here. I'm not going to take you in our truck. You're not going to get a test at Belmont. If you do, you're not going to pass it. I was heartbroken. Mm. I was stunned. Finally, I had found what I really, really wanted to do in life, and I couldn't do it where I wanted to do it, which was back east and be close to my family. Mm -hmm. So... I went back to Colorado, heartbroken, crushed, and a girlfriend said, why don't you come to California? I said, I don't want to go to California. That's a nice place to live if you're an orange. <laughs> New York snob, you know. <laughs> yes, you are. So I came to California, and I got apprenticeships. Guys took me on. You know, the culture in the West is very different. They didn't, you know, embrace me or, you know, CG, you know, but they didn't turn me away. Mm-hmm. And they allowed me to work with them and they allowed me to ride in their trucks and they allowed me to learn from them what I needed to know. And then I met the great Harry Patton. Yeah. And he was the head of the union at the racetrack. And as the big heavy horses came in, in these kind of jumper barns that I was working in and started slamming me up against the walls, I said, you know, I... I I can't handle these big horses. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. So that's when I really wanted to go to the racetrack full-time and work on thoroughbreds. I'd grown up riding thoroughbreds. I liked the breed. I was used to them. They were a horse I could handle. And so I asked Harry to train me to take that I could take the test at the racetrack. And he said yes. Well, he was mm-hmm. the only man that had ever said yes to me, the only man who would ever offered to help me, really help me. Mm-hmm. So I trained and trained and trained. I took the test. I failed it. Burst into oh. tears. And, uh, you know, it was six hours. And the, the judges, at the horseshoes at the, at the racetrack test said, gee, we've never had anybody cry at a horseshoe test <laughs> before. <laughs> so I took it again and I passed it. And I became the first woman in the United States and Canada licensed to shoe thoroughbred racehorses and the only woman ever in the history of the union to be licensed. So I started to work at Santa Anita and Harry trained me. He became, he was my mentor and he trained me to um, work on racehorses and keep them from hitting. When horses go 45 miles an hour, the front feet often hit the hind. And -hmm. when they do that, they, they hurt themselves and they stop running. So the only way for me to get, because the trainers didn't want to hire me, you know, I mean, the world wasn't waiting for a girl horseshoe. No. (laughs) So Harry gave me eyes. Harry gave me his eyes, and I learned how to fix hitting horses that raced. Mm -hmm. And And I gained a reputation for being good and for being able to do that, and I got work. And I got good work and better work and better work until finally I was doing the top, top, top racehorses that ever stepped foot on a racetrack that came to California to race. And I had a fabulous career. Mm -hmm. And, of course, then I met 
the great Monty Roberts. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> so that's that's the history. That's it. Yeah. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful story, and it's a true story, and it's a Cinderella story. Very much the seventies, wasn't it, where women were? Very seventies. Uh, oh yeah. No women. Mm-hmm. There were no women. Told told we were supposed to be doing the 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 liberation thing, but on the other hand, huh? No, no. Well, and, and there were so many women in in horse horses. So it's it's such a funny thing, but it's really flipped upside down now. Do you see a lot of women farriers now out there? Oh. Oh, I don't see I don't see any women at the racetrack much at, at all shoeing. Um, but there's really really good women farriers on the outside. They're doing dressage horses and hunter jumpers and grand prix jumpers and um, carriage horses and um, uh, draft horses. I mean, I've seen four women draft teams in competitions winning. That's awesome. Beating the guys, hands down. Unbelievable horseshoers, women horseshoers on the outside. Unbelievable. That's fun. Now, I know that you were um, the head farrier. I'm just, what's the title of your position for the uh, Tournament of Roses parade? I am the official horseshoe inspector, and huh. 250 horses have to be properly shod to go in the Rose Parade because it's five miles on pavement has a lot of hydraulic fluid from the uh, floats that make the road very slippery. And so the horses have to be properly shod with traction devices so they do not slip yeah. and fall on the pavement. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that's again, where you you and yeah. Monty it's, uh, started up your relationship again, you and exactly. Monty and Pat. Yes, yes. And, uh, and Dad knew when he heard you were the head Farrier, uh, he was he was fine because he was taking Mustangs on that same route, right. but he didn't want to put a shoe in there. No, in their hook. and barefoot is allowed uh, for the parade. And so when he heard I was the inspector, he said, Whew. "Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got it made now." So it he was, was so happy. It was wonderful. And I said, "Of course you're in. Absolutely, you're um, in compliance. Go for it, Monty. Go for it, Pat." That's right. That's right. That was really fun. And so people people know now when they watch the Rose Parade, the Tournament of Roses Parade on January one, that you have oversight in this. And you live right there in Pasadena. I live in Pasadena. I can walk to the parade from my house, and uh, I have a whole uh, sort of specification list that's handed out to the horse, the participants, many many months ahead. There's lots of meetings. Um, I take farriers with me to the pre-parade festivities, and there's lots of opportunity for the horses to come into compliance, and if they've arrived and, you know, they couldn't get the work done before they left, they can get it done here. And um, so, really, and then then 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm down in the pit with the horses before they line up to come up into the parade. So I'm still checking I'm still going up and down and checking 250 horses. Amazing. Um, it's a big job. Yeah, it is. I, I'm, I'm going to turn to horses' hoofs now just a little bit okay. um, because okay. before we go, I, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about your philosophy of you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you started and, and you're assessing a hoof. You're terrific, Debbie. That's oh. absolutely right. I think that there is so much opinion and ideas and uh, all this stuff swirling around on the 
television and in the magazines and everywhere you go and look and the, what the veterinarian says you should do and this and that. Basically, you want the horse's hoof to have 50% of its mass in front of the center of its foot and 50% behind, just like a seesaw. Mm-hmm. And it's a fulcrum and it's the point of articulation and it has never changed for thousands and thousands of years. And so it's very easy to find the center of the hoof. It's the widest part of the hoof. Mm-hmm. But you can use a ruler, and you can measure that. It's also three-quarters of an inch back from the active tip of the frog. And there's lots of rulers out on the market. Um, we have one uh, together, Monty and I, on his website. It's the patent hoof ruler. But it's it's not any different from any other item. It's just a little bit more customer-friendly for working on the foot. And basically, you want to start at the center and trim the foot and the toe, and you get a number, or let's say it's two and a half inches, and then you have that ruler on the hoof, and you see where two and a half inches is behind center, and that's mm-hmm. where you cut the heel. You want to take all your flares off. You want a nice, even hoof wall all the way around, and you let the horse tell you that it's right. And so what they'll do is they'll walk up to you, you'll watch them walk towards you, and their head be a little bit high, and maybe the stride's not quite as, a little bit short, and there's just a kind of, not a lot of tension in the body, but you'll see it. It'll just be a little bit of restriction. Mm-hmm. And you trim that foot, and you put it down on the ground, and you watch that horse. The head will drop, the ears will go forward, the eye will soften, and sometimes they'll exhale, exhale a lot air out of their belly. Nice. And then you trim the other foot exactly 50-50. You also want to see that you're 50% to the inside and 50% to the outside. That will follow. You want to do the front back. That's the most important to start. And then, then walk that horse away, turn him around, and walk him back towards you. And he'll walk like a dream. Mm. He'll be soft. He'll be relaxed. He'll, the foot will stride out. The shoulder will soften and become more loose. He tells you every time. Every yeah. time. It's nice. so that, simple. I, the horse I, is so beautifully built, and it's so simple. I love that. Um, I'm going to have you on again because I want you to give us a tip on um, the golden mean and more about the the measurement and why that works in nature. But I don't want to I don't want to give that little golden nugget up right now. But okay. I do want to <laughs> I do want to mention though that I'm going to put in the show notes. This made me think of it that um, there is a link on YouTube for people to find you. Because you were invited to the David Letterman show to shoe a live horse right, right. on his yes. stage. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, the Letterman people, I think they were always looking for stupid pet tricks or something. This is a, a <laughs> long, long, long time ago. Anyway, they found me, and they invited me to come on the air. I chose the horse, and so I flew to New York. They put me up at the Waldorf Astoria, and I went on air with uh, Letterman. I didn't see him beforehand he never sees any of his guests came on stage with a horse and if you go to youtube and you put in the search bar david letterman and ada gates or ada gates Patton, mm-hmm. up will come four and a half minutes of the funniest oh it is so funny i think it i've is. ever seen 
people <laughs> scream because you. he's so funny. Not me. He's the one. <laughs> it's a great. It's yeah. A great well, video. Y- he's a great straight man on it. I. I. I don't know. <laughs> it was really funny. People will love that. And you've got to see that. So. Got to see that. Well, great. So um, thank you, Ada. Thanks so much for being with us, being our guest, and just sharing a little bit about your life and history. But we've got to have you back to teach us some more because you have years of experience and there's a lot of people we need to mentor out there that we need good farriers out there. I think every horseman and owner knows we need more good farriers. So uh, we'll be looking for your knowledge. Well, thank you, darling, and I just thank you so much, and thank you to your beloved father. He's meant so much to me. He hired me when other people didn't, and he believed in me, and he's uh, one of the great men. He's a, he's a great, great man, and it's an honor to have him in my life. Thank and you, I'm, Ada. I, I feel very, very lucky. Thank you, Ada. Thank you. We're lucky thank to you, Debbie. Be God bless. As promised, we'll get to our interview with Dr. Miller after this thank you to our sponsor, Equus Online University. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too on our forum, And there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. Dr. Miller founded the Conejo Valley Veterinary Clinic in Thousand Oaks, California, and he spent the next 31 years there before retiring as a renowned veterinary and expert in ethology, the study of animal behavior. Dr. Miller has visited every continent, giving lectures to colleges, conventions, and every other kind of animal group imaginable. He's received numerous professional awards for his involvement in equine associations, production of videos, lecturing. He's authored several books, and he has an acute sense of humor and a love of cartoons, and that has provided us with seven veterinary cartoon books that he's written. Dr. Miller's been on the editorial staff of the finest horse magazines in the world, and he devotes his full-time teaching equine behavior to support this revolution in horsemanship that began in the Western United States in the late 20th century, and it's now a worldwide phenomenon. He's best known for his scientifically-based system of training newborn foals called imprint training. And if it's done correctly, it's the fastest and most profound method of permanently shaping a horse's responses and attitude that there is. Imprint training is now in use all over the world. Welcome, Dr. Robert Miller. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing to come to our come on our show. You're, it's just an honor to have you, you here, Dr. Miller. And I know that um, my father, Monty Roberts, has been heavily influenced by you over all these years. And you've mentioned him in quite a few of your books as well, which is um, quite uh, satisfying to him. And I am certainly honored to have you and your presence on this show. We're just waiting to hear... Um, the weight of some of the great things that you've come to learn about horsemanship. And you and I talked a little bit about this ahead of time. And what you wanted to talk about, and I'm so excited about this, is about the nature of the horse. Some people say spookiness. Some people say flight animal. Um, You said flightiness of the horse and that you wanted to put a different perspective on that. Tell me about that. 
Well, and the horse is the only domestic animal that uses flight as its primary defense. There are uh, various methods of defense in, in the animal kingdom. There's flight, there's fight, there's hiding, uh, camouflage, and there's highly specialized things like the skunk has and the uh, porcupine, for example, or the armadillo or the turtle. Uh, but the horse uh, doesn't possess the weapons that a lot of prey uh, grazing animals do, horns uh, like the rhinoceros or like uh, buffalo or bison. Uh, and uh, it, it relies upon flight, and it's been very effective because the horse has been around for 50 million years, and uh, it survived very well. So uh, that uh, method of defense has been very useful to it. However, in order for the human uh, to understand the horse, we must respect the fact that this is not stupidity. We often, even people that love horses tend to say uh, they're stupid animals. I love them, but they're stupid. They're not stupid. Uh, the flightiness of the horse is nature's wisdom, and uh, it's what's enabled it to uh, survive for uh, 50 million years in a world surrounded by predators, mainly of the dog and cat family. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so the horse physiologically, anatomically, and most important, behavior-wise, relies upon flight. Now, that's difficult for humans to identify with because we're not a flight creature. Uh, if we had to depend upon speed and running away to stay alive, there wouldn't be any humans left on the planet. <laughs> uh, so we tend to dismiss that as uh, low intelligence. It's not. It's nature's wisdom. Uh, and every characteristic uh, of the horse goes back to this flightiness. Uh, and uh, we must respect it, understand it, and understand how not to trigger it and how to uh, appease it if we're to be good horsemen. Mm -hmm. Appease it. Tell me about that, appease that. Well, there's so much that triggers the flight instinct in the horse. Even if they're so trained, they don't run off. The, the anxiety is there. Uh, the way we approach them, our walk, our facial expression... Uh, they're so perceptive that they can read that. Mm -hmm. uh, the position of our hands and uh, your dad is uh, very cognizant of that. Uh, I asked him one time when he's doing his join-up procedure why he has his hands in a hooked position. He says, my claws are out like a lion. And the horse sees that. And they definitely do. They, uh, uh, clenched fist is intimidating to the horse. Mm -hmm. And the clawed fingers, whereas the relaxed, soft uh, uh, hands and, and relaxed wrist is, is reassuring to the horse because it's mm -hmm. non-story. A common misconception about horses, and one that I had myself uh, for a long time, is that horses are afraid of predators. They are not. Horses fear predatory behavior not predators per se. Uh, that's why in Africa we were able to see lions and zebras drinking out of the same waterhole side by side because the lion was not in a predatory position. Once it assumes predatory posture, mm 
the horse goes into flight. Right. Uh, in fact, horses assume predatory posture to trigger flight in other horses. If you've ever seen a stallion uh, running behind uh, a band of mustangs and telling them, hurry, hurry, uh, keep up with her, the leader, keep up with the lead mare, and uh, his head is lowered, and he's got a predatory posture just like a uh, border collie, working sheep. Mm-hmm. So a horse responds to predatory posture, and it also responds to non-predatory posture rather than predators per se. We, of course, are a predatory species. So one reason that we can get along with horses so well uh, is the fact that uh, it's, uh, it's uh, predatory behavior that triggers flight. Very good. Yeah, so we call that um, border collie kind of position snaking. Is that is that a term that you were describing? Yes, the snaking. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. predatory behavior takes two forms. Uh, if you watch a border collie work or if you watch uh, films of a lion stalking its prey, phase one is the stalk. Motionless, crouched, eyes fixed, on the uh, prey, mm-hmm. and movements are slow and very deliberate and methodical. This is why horses spook, shy, at unfamiliar stationary objects. Mm-hmm. If they don't know what it is, uh, they're unfamiliar with it, it may trigger uh, a flight reaction, which shying is a, is a modified uh, flight reaction. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Conversely, uh, the second phase uh, is the charge. So Mm -hmm. anything that moves rapidly towards the horse, and it can be just a piece of plastic in the wind, Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a bicycle that they're unfamiliar with, or a strange creature, say a pig or a llama they've not seen before, again triggers the flight reaction because it's interpreted as predatory behavior. So those are the two things, the stationary, uh, the stalk, and the charge. It's not what does it. It doesn't have to be a lion. It can be, as I said, a bicycle or a wheelbarrow that it has not been desensitized to or a human being. Right, right. So there's, I think what you're saying, too, is that we can imitate predatorial behavior. We can either assure a horse, reassure a horse, or we can actually uh, raise his adrenaline. Precisely. And in in Monty Roberts' uh, joint technique, you'll see initially there's predation. Uh, He flips flips a line uh, at the horse, and as it comes at the horse, the horse's interpretation is this is a predator, and the reaction is flight. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also keeps his eyes right on the horse's eyes. That's predatory. Now, when the horse signals surrender, it's gone its, its genetically programmed flight distance and starts to signal with its body uh, language. Uh, I've had it. I need help. Uh, I'm, I'm dead. Uh, he, uh, he, your dad assumes a completely non-predatory thing. He angles away from the horse. He lowers his vision, becomes relaxed, and uh, the horse is immediately relieved. Mm-hmm. This is non-predatory, and the next thing, the horse comes to him. 
signaling with its mouth and with head position, uh, I need help. Are you available? Mm-hmm. And that's the moment of joining. So what he's doing is completely scientifically explainable. Very good. So there's an efficiency of training then too. Uh, the more precise your communication gestures are. Why do you think some trainers, some people can come to help a horse and understand or help the horse understand what you're asking for a little more quickly than others? Why are some people more talented at this than others? Well, efficient is the word I was going to say because I don't want to get into a, a you know a match with people. But I think some people seem to be absolutely uh, yeah. No, no question about it. It's like almost any possible talent in life. We vary. Uh, there are individuals that are totally untalented, and some that are extremely talented, and then the rest of us fall somewhere in the middle. And uh, but we can be taught. That's the important thing. And this revolution in horsemanship that's been occurring since uh, the late uh, the late 20th century mm-hmm. uh, uh, emphasizes uh, teaching. The uh, teaching clinics are changing horsemanship in the world because uh, if you're open-minded and want to learn, anybody can learn better horsemanship. Now, some people will do it better than others because of a talent, uh, because of reaction time, because they have, um, we'll call it an acting ability. Uh, okay. But anybody can learn it. Uh, it. You just have to want to. That's a great statement. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that because I think some people think that's an innate, inborn DNA kind of thing. Um, but it, I think it's important that it can be taught, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, when this whole thing started, and there were just a handful of clinicians out there. Uh, had Tom Dorrance and, uh, uh, and uh, Ray, Ray, Ray Hunt, Ray Hunt. And yeah. Monty Roberts and Pat Pirelli. Uh, there was an awful lot of talk about uh, hypnotism. I was asked right. many times, what kind of drugs are they giving those horses? Because that's impossible to do. Uh, and uh, that's why I set off on a... Uh, a mission to explain the sci- scientifically why what they're doing works and why the horse responds to it. Uh, you don't hear that so much anymore. The mysticism has been largely removed. You don't hear people talking about witchcraft anymore. Uh, yeah. They're starting to understand that it's just a question of learning the proper language. Very good. Yeah, I, I used to get when, uh, oh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, people would come whisper to me, do you do you have the gift too? As if, uh-huh. as if it, it is passed through the blood or something. But um, but I think it is like learning a language. It, it does take a lot of years and you've got decades behind you now. Um, and you've written books about it, Natural Horsemanship Explained. Uh, you've got uh, uh, one that you mentioned, The Revolution in Horsemanship, uh, Secrets of a Horse's Mind. I mean, these are the things that just those of us who love horses just uh, tingle to get all the information from you. How do you describe that relationship? It's a unique relationship between a horse and a human. Some, some creatures are basically loners. That is, they can live alone. Uh, and mostly are on their own. Uh, the house cat 
is the best example in a domestic animal. Uh, it gets along with other cats and we like other cats, but it doesn't need them. Uh, most domestic animals and many wild animals uh, and many creatures, including the human, are group creatures. We live in groups or packs or herds, and uh, being alone is extremely stressful for a species like that. Now, creatures that live in packs or in groups, if they haven't got their own kind, they will readily accept a substitute another species, and they can become as, as a, a, attached to this other species as they are to their own. Now, the easiest example for people to understand is our house pets. We all know that, uh, uh, at least most of us know, that we can get as attached to a dog, for example, uh, as we can uh, to a human being, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes far more so. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, well, a horse is the same way. Uh, in general, it would prefer to be with horses. But if horses aren't available, it'll take what's available and will attach to them. So that's, for example, you can go down a racetrack uh, and look in the stalls, and you might see a goat, uh, mm -hmm. a burro. Uh, right. uh, I've even seen chickens in cages. Uh -huh. Just to give the animals some company so they don't feel alone, because when they're alone, a group creature is under tremendous stress. Mm -hmm. uh, that includes humans. So, therefore, both the human and the horse are able to attach to the other, providing that uh, we don't establish ourselves as a predatory enemy. If we establish ourselves as a, as a comrade, a friend, a companion, and particularly a companion in charge, then that's important. Yeah. That's important that uh, we have to be dominant in our relationship with horses. Now, some people get very turned off for that. Uh, they confuse dominance with cruelty. Mm. Now, some dominant individuals are cruel. Hitler was dominant. Uh, Saddam Hussein was dominant, but they were also cruel. But if you think about it, the great philosophers, the great teachers, the great statesmen, and above all, the great religious leaders in, in uh, history were mostly not only dominant, but also kind. And that's the thing that we have to, uh, the relationship that we have to attend to achieve with the horse. Dominance with kindness. Yeah, very good. That's very nice. Well, that's a great segue into um, what I think I know I know you as an artist, as an author, as a cartoonist, as a as a as a jokester. I know all those things in you, but I think more people than not know you for your imprint training of the foal. And I know that back in 1986, when you first broke this, or at least that's where my memory starts from, um, about imprinting, it, it created a bit of a controversy, a bit of a split in the horsemanship community. Am I right? Yes, and although that has disappeared to a great extent, it's still I agree. there are still those who uh, uh, who don't accept it and so on. They will in time because it has proven itself as uh, the most dramatic and fastest method of shaping a horse's behavior, and it's now in use on every continent except Antarctica. I guess they oh. don't have to sit down, but. Uh, it wasn't uh, traditional, at least not in our time. Uh, 
I have found definite proof that it was traditional with certain nomadic peoples that live 24 hours a day with their horses. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know three American Plains Indian tribes that imprint trained, very much similar to what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, two tribes in Canada, one tribe in Argentina, and I have run across families that had re- tradition, even though the nations didn't. Uh, one in um, Germany, uh, and uh, one, I, I can't remember which South American country right now, but one. Mm. So uh, I never, I didn't invent anything. Uh, there's nothing new in the world. Uh, what I did was give it a name, uh, popularize it, and, and most important, explain it scientifically because uh, it is completely explainable scientifically. What people must realize is that the newborn foal, uh, a precocial species whose uh, reflexes, uh, whose uh, brain is fully formed at birth and whose Mm -hmm. senses are working, their sense of sight, their smell, uh, their hearing, fully developed at birth, they're not, not puppies or kittens or human babies. Uh, that's the way they stay alive, uh, by being precocial. That these creatures, uh, uh, the greatest learning power in their entire life is in the minutes, the hours and days following birth. But they will learn the wrong thing just as rapidly And as lastingly as the right thing. So it's vitally important it be done correctly. And I tell people, if you're not going to follow instructions and do it correctly, please don't do it at all. That's right. It's real easy to spoil a fool. I will never forget the day your dad called me. I had never met him. I knew who he was. Uh, And said, I'm calling to apologize. I said, for what? Mm-hmm. He said, I've been using imprint training for three years. He's reduced my training time on my racehorses by 75%. Mm-hmm. And I apologize for not having called you sooner. <laughs> I said, don't apologize. I'm tickled to death because the racing industry was particularly resistant to that. That's no longer true, but it was then. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, initiated a friendship between us, which has persisted to this day. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great story. I didn't even know about that, Bob. Thank you for sharing that. No, I didn't even know about that. I'm going to have you back because I would love to have you talk a little bit more about the the process of imprint training. So we're going to leave people wanting more here. But um, I also want to have you back, too, to see the fun side of you, too. I, I know we... We have books like Ranch and Ropin' and Doctrine and uh, Yes, We Treat Aardvarks, you know, those popular animals. <laughs> I love I love all the subjects you have. I would love to have you back, but I was completely honored to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. And if people uh, want uh, a list of my, uh, my books and videos, they can uh, look up robertmmiller.com, and they'll find a description of everything there. Uh, so, That's right. Uh, yeah, and people will support that. Um, they they um, 
they can go, we will have in the show notes, we will have about uh, your website and some photos. People should go on there and see how beautifully you still ride. You and Debbie both are beautiful horsemen still and uh, traveling the world and giving talks and lectures and clinics. And I hope people will go on your website and see all the activity that you're doing for the horses. Yes, both of us in our 80s, we still ride uh, all the time and uh, still travel constantly. Uh, Horses help keep us young. That's it. It's good for the core. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Miller. Thank you. Welcome back, Joel Baker. As promised, we wanted Joel Baker to come back, and he has acquiesced to our request for a short tip. One of his favorite things to tell people about horsemanship. So this is Horse Sense with Joel Baker, and we're happy to have him here to share a little bit of his intuitive knowledge after 30-plus years, Joel, of being on the road with polo ponies and, and keeping them healthy. Um, we'd like to know a little bit more about polo and that travel that uh, is uh, critical to getting from Florida to the Western United States to suddenly you're in Dubai. And how do you keep all those horses healthy? Well, the, it's amazing how the horses travel, and they travel very well as long as we can keep them, uh, you know, with water and feed. And so I found, like going to Florida, if I do keep don't trailer more than uh, 12 hours a day, and then give them 12 hours of rest, and usually in a bigger turnout area where they can walk around and they can free feed and, and drink, that they'll arrive very refreshed and can start competing within within the week. Um, uh, the, when we're flying the horses, like to Argentina or Mexico or other places, um, it's a, quite a bit easier because they're usually not on the airplane more than eight, ten hours, and so they they still get that oh, same refreshment. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you use electrolytes? Um, we uh, yes, yes and no. It depends on the weather. You know, if we're shipping in the winter time, uh, usually not. But if we're shipping in the summertime. Uh, we try to, uh, uh, you know, electrolytes or Gatorade, put in the water, I think, to help them uh, stay hydrated. Mm-hmm. Do you have special boots that you put them on, or is it just the traditional you know, wraps? Polo is interesting. We we don't. Uh, you know, we we put them in uh, these gooseneck trailers and, and more or less together, but we, we put them at, at almost a 45-degree angle, and mm-hmm. so they it's hard for them to step on each other mm-hmm. the way they're, they're, they're lined in the trailer. And they mm-hmm. lean back and forth. So I, I've shipped with boots, uh, and you know, we fly. We usually put boots on them because they're installed, and they're more apt to uh, be climbing the sides if the if yeah. plane gets rough. But uh, in shipping cross-country, um, we can usually get away without doing that. And a lot of the newer gooseneck trailers we use are have dividers, so the horses are in separate uh, stalls, but they still can spread their legs underneath to give themselves balance. Yeah, yeah, good. So do you have any funny stories? What's the funniest story you've ever heard about traveling? Good ones, <laughs> good funny stories. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, Be careful. Nothing really comes, thank goodness nothing comes to, <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> to light. Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the um, we've been with all the traveling back and forth and very lucky and trying to plan things out well, make sure the tires are right. That's, that's an important thing is, Make sure if your trailer's been sitting, it's probably going to, um, the tires are probably starting to rot and they'll, it'll blow out the second day. Mm-hmm. So I've found that um, if, I, if I'm if i not using my rig uh, 
uh, I will jack it up and, and, and probably keep it out of the sun, keep the tires out of the sun to try to keep them from rotting out. Mm-hmm. That's but right. besides uh, just watching for the blowout on the trailer and just keep them uh, steady, it's, uh, it's, it's relatively easy to move the horses around these days. Great. Great. Well, thank you for that tip today. I appreciate the horses. What in the wide, wide world of sports is it going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty's looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, in... Brazil, November 30th and December 1st and December 7th and 8th. The two weekends, he'll be uh, training and a workshop in outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil, in Jacarai. And then January 25th, 2014, we have a night of inspiration with Monty at Flags Up Farms in Solvang, California. And then the next day, a workshop, an all-day workshop based on the man who listens to horses. We call it Life Lessons, and it's, it has a workbook that goes with it. And you can find all this information at MontyRoberts.com or call 805-688-6288. What do you think the chances are I could sneak into Monty's luggage and just hang out at the beach in Brazil while he works? You know, I think you should try, but you know, (laughs) it's really nice down there and it's a nice time of year too. I think you could try it. You know, he does, he has this, um, status. He flies so much. He he actually flies more than pilots do because there's a legal limit to pilots. Right. So he literally flies more than the pilots do. And he has a status where he can take three bags at 70 pounds. Us peons, you know, we get... Uh, two at 50 we, or one at 50. Yeah, 50. Right. yeah, one at 50 or two if you can afford it. But uh, 50 is our limit. He's 70. So you imagine him traipsing around. I think you could get in there, Glenn. I think I could, yeah. Yeah, I've lost a lot of weight, so I might. Good. Okay, that'll help. <laughs> yeah, don't eat turkey first. Yeah, okay. Oh, that sounds good. Well, for details about today's show, go to horsemanshipradio.com where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Uh, You can uh, send us an email. Just go to the website would be the easiest way to find that information at horsemanshipradio.com. You can follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Monty Roberts or at twitter.com slash Monty underscore Roberts. Many thanks to our sponsors as well. Be sure to visit all the other great shows at Horse Horse Radio Network. That's Glenn. Horse Radio Network is at www.horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. 